Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 154 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, this would naturally be nothing less than the Jack Nicholas episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that the amazing legendary golfer Jack Nicholas, uh, during his career from between the 1957 U.S. Open to the 1998 U.S. Open, played in a record number of consecutive major championships. That number would naturally be nothing less than 154. And with that little bit of golfing knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Now, have you ever gotten to a conversation with somebody about Jack Jack Nicholas, but that person thought you were talking about Jack Nicholson, and the conversation just kept going and going until... Probably you caught on to what the issue was or is uh, or a couple been. of times, but never, yeah. but, but it's never really gone on very far. Like I would start talking about Jack Nicholas and it's not like it's, you know, something that's a very common occurrence anyway. And then I would mention something golfing related and then they'd be like, wait, is that the actor? And I'm like, no, 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 this is an actual golfer. So anyway. Yeah. Are you a golfing fan? Do you watch the PGA Tour or anything like that? No, no. I am not a... Do you find um, yourself dreaming about Pebble Beach? <laughs> no. I, it, it's, um, I, I have a great deal of respect for the game, and I love... And it's really weird. I really do like it in a video game format. And if I had money, I do believe I would play, but I just find it to be too boring to watch otherwise. Yeah, I, whenever high-definition TVs first became kind of like the thing, so n- not too long ago, one of the things that I was kind of in awe of was watching golf on Saturday mornings because the greens looked green, the lakes looked murkier than ever, and the skies were blue and beautiful, and I, I think I actually was able to sit through maybe 27 minutes of golf. Well, I will say this. The... I don't know what the superpower serum these guys are injected with, but the fucking cameraman on golf, like forever, like even when I was a kid and it would just be on for whatever reason in the next room, how the fuck do they follow that ball? I mean, it is this tiny little, you know, three inch round sphere that has just been hit at something ungodly like 200 miles an hour. And yet they follow it like there's nothing to it. Just boom, boom. They follow the arc and watch it land. I'm like, I can't even see the fucking thing, and I'm watching it on TV. That's got to be the most stressful job, though. I I don't think it's effortless like that. I think it's more like, you know, it's kind of like a crapshoot. They just hope that they're pointing the camera in the right direction, (laughs) and it's catching it, and they're just sweating bullets the entire time until, oh, there, there it is. There it is. It's in frame. Maybe. I have no idea. But anyway, so how was your week, weekend, what have you, as we sit here on the 16th of November? One week and three days before Thanksgiving. It was delicious, chilly, and depressing. All right. Care to elaborate? (laughs) 
or or shall we just uh, be left wondering why you are were you were one uh, deliciously fed morose motherfucker? Well, delicious because I made another pie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. This week's pie is brought to you by Martha Stewart, and it was the chocolate pecan pie, or as Elvis would probably say it, pecan pie. Well, maybe not like that. Something like that. But I do believe he did love the pecan pie. So that's always good. Pecan pie. Cold pecan pie. Pecan pie with ice cream, even. Maybe a warm cinnamon apple on top. Who knows? Uh, a glaze. You're, you're, you're starting to drift into Buford Blue territory there. It's not my fault you don't like pecan pie. and I like, pecan, I like pecan pie just fine. But you're sitting there going... Then there's this kind of pecan pie, pecan pie, <laughs> limo, chocolate pecan pie, pecan pie in the morning, pecan pie that's cold. I mean, I'm just sitting here waiting for us to get in trouble with the drill sergeant and start having to scrub the floors with a toothbrush so you can continue to tell me all about the wonders that is the pecan pie. Well, what is interesting about the pecan pie is that if you talk about the pecan pie long enough, it's not just a pecan pie. You start developing an accent towards the pecan pie. So eventually, you will have to say pecan pie, and then pecan pie does turn into... Does it turn into pecan, and then peking, and then somewhere along the line it becomes peking duck? Or, or peking duck? Or, or, just, or just can. Get that can <laughs> pie? Uh, okay, so it's delicious because of the pecan pie, and chilly because of the weather. It's brisk, it's cool, it's windy, power lines are falling out of the sky, and shit. And depressing because, so the movies we watched <laughs> weren't really the happiest. Meryl and the Dying Girl, uh, Mr. Holmes is the lesser of the depressing of the films. But 99 Homes, which neither of us were able to see uh, because for some reason they decided to yank it out from every single movie theater, not only in L.A., but everywhere, even though it's supposed to be a fantastic film. Apparently, Jim and the Holograms and Steve Jobs are setting a trend here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we went and saw the significant other and I ended up seeing uh, the movie Room, which is a fantastic, fantastic movie. And I'm very much looking forward to reviewing that movie on the show. So, of course, that movie is depressing due to its subject matter. If you're not familiar with it, it's based on a book. It's about stuff. Check it out. So yeah, that that is my reasoning for it being a delicious, chilly, and depressing past week. Cool. When, when yeah. are we going to review the room? room? Wait, room or the room? Whatever room, the movie you saw. When, when I mean, are we whenever we're reviewing that. Whenever, whenever it uh, it opens up wide near you, probably next week or so. So I guess maybe in two shows, two episodes, maybe. Okay, why not? So how was your past week, Yanni McYonerson? Um, it was ex- exhausting, literally exhausting, and I'm still recovering from it. Yeah. But, I mean, it was a, 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 a everything was just leading up going into my um, family reunion that was this past weekend in oh, that's San right. Filippi. Yeah. And I got to spend, we arrived on Thursday and then left Sunday afternoon. And we had a we had a, a a nice trailer, but unfortunately the bed was 
the worst I have ever slept. I mean, and let's not let's get one thing straight. It's not like the lap of luxury when you're in a trailer bed to begin with, but there are better beds than others, and this was just an atrocious, godforsaken thing. I literally, I think the whole time I was there, I probably got a combined total of about six and a half hours of sleep between Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. It was terrible. Um, long days, exhausting, because I had, I and one cousin, uh, Joel, who actually has now... Uh, we were talking movies the whole weekend, so I- I'm thinking we might need to review The War at some point. But anyway. The War? The War, the Kevin Costner, uh, Elijah Wood movie. The War... Yeah, isn't it called The War? I thought it was called The War. Pretty sure it's called The War. That's no, what he know. kept calling it. Well, I don't know. Oh. We'll were, you, were you guys drunk? War. No, it's the 1990... That's it. The The War, 1994 film. Really? Yeah. Oh. I've never seen I, it. Yeah, I, and I had seen it. It's been a good 20 years since I've seen it, but yeah, I, I, I have seen it. Anyway. So have, have you had anybody like cut ties with you because they listen to the SLS cast? <laughs> no. Uh, but I, well, that's what I was getting at. Part of the reason it was so exhausting was because I have now kind of inherited running it from uh, the previous, from, from the previous generation. It has been handed down. And the only person, the only other person really in my, in, in our current generation of Quentin's, uh, that would do it was my cousin Joel, and so um, it was a Herculean effort. And of course, Jen by default had to help, <laughs> and uh, Joel's wife also by default had to help. And I mean, it, it came; it was pulled off successfully. Everybody had a had a fantastic time, and we had our annual marshmallow fight and we actually introduced kickball this year and tug of war into the into the mix and had copious amounts of barbecue bouncy houses and all sorts of wonderful things armadillo hunts so you are now master master quentin like that can be your title title now master quentin so you did armadillo hunts Mm -hmm. now did you do something less terrifying and do like snipe hunting no, no, no. We do. We we do. There, there's actually a one hundred dollar bounty for bringing a live armadillo back before nine p.m. So, did your children do this as well? Like, where did they? Can anybody participate? Yes, anybody can participate. But in order to collect the hundred dollar bounty, you pretty much have to be under like the age of fifteen. Anybody get like you know rabies or syphilis or anything? <laughs> it's leprosy, and leprosy. no. <laughs> No, it, it really is that what you it, get it, when you mix uh, rabies and syphilis. You get leprosy. Well, well no, the, uh, they actually don't carry rabies or syphilis. They carry leprosy, and it it can actually only be acquired by eating undercooked armadillo meat. So you're you're pretty safe picking one up. Now, if you're not careful, they will definitely scratch the fuck out of you. But you're you're okay otherwise. Yeah, I used to go hunting armadillos on a golf club in Augusta Pines. Back in high school. I remember when you told this story. I did. I did. You were rather traumatized by the end of it. I was, because I got stuck in the back with all the dead armadillos. (laughs) And they they roll up in that ball and they pop up and you... People were whacking them with golf clubs and baseball. It was crazy. 
Nice. And, and, yeah. and look at that. Not even you contracted leprosy. Aren't you happy? Hey, I didn't touch I mean, any of the jury's fuckers. still out on the syphilis, but, you know, we're, we're still good. There. I, might, I might have rabies. I might have rabies. <laughs> nah, you'd have been dead from that long, long time ago. So, Anyway, but yeah, so it was, it was a fun weekend, just extremely exhausting. A uh, lot of work, but a lot of fun. And then, of course, leading up to actually getting out there, I had to do a bunch of stuff preparing for it. Plus, I had just a shit ton of school. And then I come back, and there's, of course, still schoolwork to do and um movies to watch for the show and uh yeah so i'm just one tired guy he's matt 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 he's one tired matt and he's tired and anyway tired. <laughs> so yeah but um and, and so yeah so that's been my week and that was your week and i guess let's move to the news what do you say sounds like a plan all right folks here we go it's the news. Yes, it is indeed the news. Uh, you will notice to the non-casual listener that we did skip over the email. That's because there was none. Anyway. My first and only piece of news this week, daily.com is where it comes from. This comes to us by way of Gavia Baker Whitelaw. Here are the ill-fated films releasing on the same day as Star Wars The Force Awakens. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Star Wars The Force Awakens is clearly going to be the biggest film of 2015, if not the biggest in Hollywood history. First day tickets sold out in record time, and the film's total domination of IMAX screens means that movies like The Revenant won't reach IMAX until January. With all that in mind, we have to wonder which movies have drawn the short straw being released alongside Star Wars and why. According to Box Office Mojo, Star Wars shares a release date with the Tina Fey Amy Poehler comedy Sisters, the Chinese fantasy movie Mojin, The Lost Legend, the Hungarian World War II drama Son of Saul, and Alvin and the Chipmunks Road Chip. Ah, yeah. With puns like that, it's amazing there have been like four movies. Judging by this list, we can think of a few reasons why these films are going toe-to-toe with the box office Godzilla that is... The Force Awakens. Number one, their target target audience doesn't really overlap with Star Wars, so they're not in direct competition. For example, Son of Saul. Number two, they've already seen as inevitable. They're already seen. Pardon me. They're already seen as inevitable flops, and are being buried on a dud release date. I'm thinking that probably applies to Sisters, and quite frankly, I believe that uh, Gavia is correct in this assumption. And number three, distributors are hoping that when audiences arrive at theaters and discovers that Star Wars is sold out, they'll overflow into another movie instead. Say, Motion, The Last Le- the Lost Legend, or Chipmunks, if they brought kids. The next week, of course, sees the release of a few more major movies, including the Point Break remake, Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, and The Revenant. Ah, yeah. It's fun stuff here. The uh, article concludes with the with the following uh, two sentences, though. For the actors and filmmakers involved, like movies involved, 
Channeling my inner Tim over here. Ooh, burn. Apply cream. <laughs> For the actors and filmmakers <laughs> involved in movies like Point Break and... <laughs> Asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For the actors and filmmakers involved in movies like Point Break and Sisters, there is a silver lining. If their film bombs, they have the perfect excuse. Nothing could go up against The Force Awakens and win. Uh, What do you think there, Tim? Now, I I personally had not heard of these films, uh, the Chinese movie Mojin, The The Lost Legend, and the Hungarian World War II drama Son of Saul. But, I mean, seriously? Sisters? I mean, that movie, that movie needs to make every fucking dime it possibly can, and they're releasing it against The Force Weekends? Are they just bound and determined to say, you know, like, like, this married couple's going to show up, and the husband's like, okay, sweetheart, I'm off to see Star Wars, and she's going to be like, you have fun, I'm off to see Sisters. Um, I don't understand. Well, Matt, if you were as cultured as I was, you would know that... No, I'm kidding. I don't know. I It could be everything that you just said, or or maybe these movies really aren't that good, and they're willing to try anything in hopes that these movies will make a little bit of money back. Because maybe if, if, these movie, if they release these movies in January or February, they wouldn't get any spillover that they're, that they're hoping for. And also, like with Sisters, uh, that I'm sure that movie didn't cost too much. I mean, that's with Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. True, but I would think that that would be that's like one of those that would be ripe for January, because, or if nothing else, at least like maybe the 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 week after Christmas or something when people are still on vacation or whatnot. Because, I mean, January is typically a pretty slow month, and a nice comedy featuring two women that are generally seen as a good comedic duo i would think that would do much better then so i'm thinking that they're just they're either thinking it's gonna bomb or they're really banking on split movie patrons i don't know i don't know but. i mean it's just like with star wars the first week of star wars in a number i don't i can't I don't know if, if it's most movie theaters but in a lot of movie theaters if you cannot get into the 10 p.m. showing, you can get into the 2 a.m. showing. And I have a feeling a lot of people would rather just wait to go to the 2 a.m. showing than go and see Sisters or I'm Alvin guessing, and the See, that's what I'm Chipmunk. thinking, too. It, it's just, I don't, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'm surprised that there is anybody releasing a movie. I'm pretty, I'm, it's like, I don't know if I would even want to release a film within three weeks of this film coming out because it's already hard enough to keep your film on top or at least bringing in receipts because naturally it declines over time. But you're going to be like, oh, wow, I made, you know, 30 million in week one. And then I made, oh, look, I made, you know, 22 million in week two. And then here comes Star Wars The Force Awakens. And oh, look, they took my movie out of the theater. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, unless they know something we don't know about Star Wars. <laughs> A year, like a year I ago, tell you, it's uh, gonna bomb. It's, like nine months ago, nobody's gonna show. It. It's gonna be fantastic. Release sisters, do it now. I'm telling you, Alvin and the Chipmunks. It's gonna blow them away. All right. Anyway, so that's my news, man. So go ahead, bring us home. 
Oh, and one more thing to add to that. Uh, I was mm. kind of looking here at Forbes, and they mentioned here, I guess quoting Forbes, the film will earn tons of free publicity by being the film that goes up against the Empire. So some will discuss it in girls versus boys narratives. Some will use the old David and Goliath shtick. But the fact that Sisters is opening up against The Force Awakens makes the film far more media-friendly than if it were opening pretty much any other time this year. And if the film does well against the weight of the Jedi, it will be seen as a kind of strike back against the towering Hollywood franchise machine, even if its numbers are no different than if it were opening sans Star Wars. It is one thing for a smaller film to merely ride out to sea against the oncoming tsunami, yeah, that's pretty much it. So I don't know how I necessarily feel about that either, because that kind of does tie into what you were talking about a little while ago. Anyways, that was from Forbes, Trailer Talk, How Star Wars Helps Tina Fey and Amy Poehler's Sisters from July, actually. <laughs> They've been talking about this for months. There you go. All right, man. What do you got for us? All right. First off from Collider.com, Disney legend... Alan Minken is writing songs for Seth Rogen's upcoming film, Sausage Party. This is written by Nick Romero, and this came out last week. And it says this, The great Alan Minken has composed music for such renowned classics as Aladdin, Beating the Beast, The Little Mermaid, and Newsies. Now he can add Sausage Party to that prestigious resume. Seth Rogen teamed up with his longtime partner in crime, Evan Goldberg, to develop a raunchy R-rated animated comedy about a sausage determined to discover the truth about his existence. And the result is the aforementioned Sausage Party. In addition to scripting duties, on which Kyle Hunter and Ariel Schaefer also worked, Rogen is lending his voice to a character named Frank. The funny man recently tweeted a behind-the-scenes photo from the recording booth of some sheet music revealing Mencken's involvement. The song is called The Great Beyond. It begins with the words, Dear Gods, You Are So Divine. And Mencken's is the name behind the music. End all quotes there. So yeah, I mean, if you are a Disney fan and you happen to be a Seth Rogen fan, especially the Seth Rogen type of you know type of humor, if you're into that, you're gonna be in heaven when this movie gets released, August twelfth of next year. It's gonna be a very raunchy movie, so it's gonna be very interesting to see how Alan Menken's music kind of transfers over into that type of genre. And I kind of wonder if the music's going to be raunchy as well, or if it's going to try to, it's, or if it's going to be kind of innocent in a way, and they're going to play it up like how the South Park guys, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, did with Book of Mormon, where the music, a lot of the lyrics, or some of the lyrics are very raunchy and dirty, but the music itself is absolutely beautiful, and some of the orchestrations are very nice and quite impressive. So does this make you want to see this movie even more, Matt? Or whoever? Matthew? Matthew, are, are you pooping again? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's tough talking with the mute button pressed. <laughs> I'm, I'm apparently very good at that. Did I mention that I was tired yet? Uh, I actually, um, I mean, yay, Disney. That's interesting. I've already lost my train of thought. Just go to the next story. It's fine. All right. <laughs> next week, or next week. Oh, my God. You're see now you now you're getting it. It's like it's like psycho psychic. 
Ah, fuck it. I can't even do the joke right. Fuck it. Just go. Next up from IndieWire.com from the blog The Playlist. A screenwriter pitches a diehard sequel idea, story idea, with a full-page ad in The Hollywood Reporter. This is written by Kevin Jaggernauth. Wow, how about that name? Jaggernauth. Unless it's Jaggernauth. Jaggernauth. Uh, maybe Jaggernauth, which therefore that could be the cooler of the two names. Uh, again, this is from The Playlist. John McClane cannot be killed, and the same goes for the Die Hard franchise. Even though the series is circling the bowl creatively, going through the motions with barely any inspiration the last time out with A Good Day to Die Hard, Fox is determined to continue, and thus Die Hard 6 has been developing for a while now and has morphed into Die Hard Year One, a prequel that will take audiences back to the 70s to learn about young John McClane. It's a concept that already has the thumbs up from Bruce Willis, but most agree it's not what anybody wants to see from a Die Hard movie. But screenwriter Eric D. Wilkinson is doing everything he can to get some eyeballs on his pitch for the movie. Eric D. Wilkinson, whose biggest film credit to date is probably as a producer on the comedy spoof Paranormal Movie, but his treatment in a full-page spread open letter in the print edition of The Hollywood Reporter addressed to Bruce Willis, Lorenzo D. Bonaventura, and Lynn Weissman, the trio shepherding the sixth Die Hard movie. The gist of it is that McLean gets sent to prison, accused of committing a crime he wasn't able to solve back in the 70s. His wife comes to visit with evidence that could clear his name. But a riot breaks out, and John McLean has to save the day. Which will, including tangling with some Middle Eastern terrorists, here's the meat of it. Former hero cop John McClane, 60 years old, and beat to shit, is a convicted felon being carted off to a federal prison. Why? Flashback to 1979, where a 24-year-old New York City Patrol officer, John McClane, is part of a team of cops assigned to investigate the murder of a 6-year-old Ethan Peller. Working under the direction of an up-and-coming detective, Stan Winshaw, strong police work leads McLean to suspect possible sex trafficker Clarence Sutton, who mysteriously vanishes moments before McLean can make the arrest. The world-breaking McLean and his superior Winshaw butt heads. The trail goes cold and the case is never solved. When McLean makes unprovable accusations about Winshaw, he is transferred to the city's bleakest division. 34 years later, Detective John McLean takes a personal leave and heads to Moscow to help his estranged son, who is being tried in a Russian court. While McLean is out of the country, the remains of Clarence Sutton are discovered, not only with DNA evidence linking Sutton to the murder of Ethan Peller, but additional evidence that ties McLean to Sutton's killing. Upon McLean's return from Russia, he is arrested, tried, and convicted for the murder of Clarence Sutton. He is given a 30-year prison sentence in ADX Florence, an ultra-maximum security or supermax prison which houses some of the most dangerous criminals in the country, including Omar al Omar al-Makdisi and Abdul bin Said, masterminds of the two worst terrorist attacks on American soil. Following the Russian adventure, John had successfully reunited his family and reconnected with his wife, Holly. Now, while he serves his sentence, Holly has been spending all of her time and effort on his appeal, 
especially once new evidence surfaces which may not only exonerate McLean, but also implicate Stan Winshaw, who is now a decorated police captain who may have framed John for the murder of the suspect they were chasing nearly 40 years ago. However, the day Holly goes to the prison to deliver his news personally to John, the riot breaks out, and before she can safely leave, the prison is put on lockdown. But this is no ordinary prison. And it goes on from there. If you want to read the rest, check it out. It's on the print edition of The Hollywood Reporter. However, like I mentioned earlier, the meat of it is included here on IndieWire.com via the playlist. I honestly think... Two things. One, I think this is a cool idea because, you know, it seems like this guy is a fan of the franchise and I think it's important to, to, to maybe to bring somebody new on with a fresh idea and try to stay true to the character itself and, and the feeling of the Die Hard movies, especially the first couple Die Hard movies. And Live Free and Die Hard I thought was pretty good also. And to me, him being stuck in a Supermax prison is a fun idea on top of that, they have a really good reason. A, they, they found a good story element, a plot device, to put him in that prison. On the other hand, I kind of think this story might be way too good for the Die Hard franchise. I don't know. It just, it just seems too good to be true for this movie to be anything like this. Because personally, I really don't want to see an origin story of John McClane like this. You know, I don't mind, like, seeing a flashback or there being some backstory, but I don't want the sole movie to, like, go back and forth from the present to the past. Present, past, present, past. It's just a little hokey, and it's there's too much origin shit going on these days. What do you think, Matt? Do you like this guy's idea? Do you applaud him for spinning the dough to do this? No, I, I honestly, I... I um... I think it is it's a very neat idea and while I can appreciate it as an idea there just don't need to be any more die hard movies at this point and I think it would this is a this is the perfect impetus to bring it back to its roots as we all know there was an original 1979 novel actually probably not a lot of people know this but whatever we're cool we're hipster like that 1979 novel, Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. This is the book that Die Hard, the original film, is based on. So why not bring it back to the novel? Because I think that if it is something that is really, really good that could be fleshed out, I think a book would be the most amazing way to do that. Because you can then picture Bruce Willis in all of his amazing glory without having to worry about any of the subtext and any of the ridiculousness that has become the series of film, while at the same time putting whatever mix of of on-screen bad guys that you've ever seen into the prison part of the book. So, make a book, dude. Make a book. And that, that's it. To f- conclude the news, this episode, from the HollywoodReporter.com Something that I I don't think I would ever put these two actors in a movie or have ever thought that these two actors would ever be in a movie, mainly because I think Gene Simmons should never be in a movie to begin with. But believe it or not, back in 1986, he starred in a film 
with John Stamos. That's right, Uncle Jesse from Full House, 1986, and it's entitled Never Too Young to Die. And more than likely, you never saw it because it was a box office bomb. This article here, HollywoodReporter.com, Hollywood flashback, John Stamos, Gene Simmons recall insane 1986 bomb, never too young to die. And it says this, this is written by Seth Abramovich. Quote, I just thought, I'm done with TV. I'm going to be a movie star. And then I did that piece of shit, end quote says the grandfathered star of the Camp Fest that saw him play a young James Bond against an evil hermaphrodite played by the Kiss bassist. He plays opposite the hermaphrodite drag-dressing Gene Simmons. Uh, and it continues, the movie was never too young to die, low-budget Camp Fest at Stamos, then 22, and still a year away from being cast in ABC's Full House, mistakenly thought would be his ticket to movie stardom. In it, the Kiss bassist plays evil hermaphrodite Velvet Von Ragnar, who kills Stamos' secret agent father, George Lazenby, spoofing his one-off role as James Bond. Stamos' character, prep school senior Lance Stargrove, avenges his dad's death with the help of a secret agent, Donja Deering, played by Vanity of Prince fame. Quote, I had to shave and wax my chest, wear a prosthetic set of boobs and all sorts of other indignites, respectfully, to those that enjoy that sort of thing, end quote, says Simmons, who drew, quote, whistles and catcalls from the Teamsters, end quote, whenever he emerged from his trailer. Simmons, 66, cites a song by the transgender punk rocker Jane County, upon whom Hedwig and the Angry Itch was based, as his Velvet Von Ragnar inspiration, quote, it takes a man like me to be a woman like me, end quote. Quote, it was scary, end quote, says Stamos, 52, of Simmons's transformation. Quote, I guess it was supposed to be like a Rocky Horror sweet transvestite thing. I think I had nightmares about it because it was Jean's big face with all that makeup and stuff. It was a trip, end quote. Simmons, for his part, has a good sense of humor about the gender-bending turn. Quote, ah, the folly of youth, end quote, he muses. Quote, I was offered two parts in Never Too Young to Die, the role of Marine Commander in a hermaphrodite. That'll teach me to read scripts before accepting roles, end quote. When Never Too Young came along, it had been two years since Stamos had walked away from a regular gig on General Hospital, and the young heartthrob had big dreams for his career, saying, quote, I just thought this was my shot, a young James Bond. I thought it was going to be the biggest breakthrough. I'm done with TV. I'm going to be a movie star. And then I did that piece of shit, end quote, Stamos says. The actor threw himself into the role, taking gymnastics lessons and breaking his ankle in the process. Quote, I worked so hard to make it great, end quote. Stamos' first memory of Vanity, who played his on-screen love interest, she douses herself with a garden hose while he munches on an apple in one seduction scene, is a vivid one. At the cast meet-and-greet, a dinner held at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood, the nasty girl singer, quote, put her hand down my pants before the appetizer started coming out. She completely seduced the shit out of me. I thought, wow, this is going to be a great movie, end quote. Stamos says. And I'll just end that there. The article does go on for a 
little bit uh, for a little bit more. And yeah, again, that movie was Never Too Young to Die, 1986, with John Stamos and Gene Simmons. Doesn't that make you want to like drink and get high and just watch this movie? Because I hope so, Matt, because once we have time, this movie, if we cannot find it anywhere else, this movie is indeed on YouTube. <laughs> Okay. In its full glory. And I know, Matt, you're really into Gene Simmons and the idea of Gene Simmons as a hermaphrodite and wearing fake boobs, you're totally into. Yeah. Yeah, I was been a... You, you figured out my fetish. You want to hunt his armadillos at night. That's right. All two of them. And that's my news! <laughs> All right, great. <clears throat> well, then that will conclude the news and bring us to a rather impromptu... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, we will be discussing the Gizmodo.com article, Why You Will Never Be Safe from Spoilers on the Internet, by Brian Lufkin. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. Yes, we were. We we do realize that we had uh, wanted to do some kind of fun, random three squared, but we never heard from anybody on Twitter either. So Tim thought it, this might be a good opportunity to cover this particularly interesting article. So that's what we're doing. And next week we'll have a three squared, but we'll get to that at the end. Uh, yes. So basically, Brian Lufkin is uh, making the is positing the theory that we live in a world that presents us two choices. We either have to binge or, and, or, I'm sorry, we either have to binge in order to remain spoiler free, or we have to shut ourselves up like um, Andy Samberg did in, in his Emmy opening skit in a bunker to prevent ourselves from not being able to have spoilers. And he he does make the case that while some might argue that this is the world that we live in, there are, however, ways that you can go around it. You can either be proactive on your own and get spoiler uh, spoiler preventing software so that you can you know whitelist certain sites and things of that nature so your searches won't inadvertently pop things up. Uh, you can also um, you, you know do smart searching and things of that nature. But he then goes into the idea of what tech companies could do in order to prevent spoilers from inadvertently happening. And to be fair um, to the author, the author does state very clearly that there are clearly more important things in the world that should be worked on, but just for the sake of the article, what are some things that they could do? And... I gotta say, um, it's an interesting article, but I I personally don't think it's necessary. It um, I think that the existing method of either being smart about how you search for things, or being smart and or being smart about when to get on the internet after something has. Um, that you know, after something 
comes up that could be spoiled for you is is really probably the just the easiest way to go. Uh, we live in a society that is just dominated by on-demand consumption. And while I can certainly understand that there is a need to be able to partake in the 21st century without necessarily having things spoiled for you, I simply think that we also live in a world that if you just simply aren't staying up to date for whatever reason, and I'm not talking about someone who just happened to miss last night's episode. I mean, if you haven't been into a show like House of Cards, then it's pretty clear that you don't care. And if you don't care, then you're not really going to have anything spoiled for you. And even in the rare event that you might have something spoiled for you and then you come across it later, chances are you're probably not going to remember it very, very well by the time you get into said show. Um, So... I don't know. I mean, the article in and of itself is not a waste of time because it does present some interesting ideas for tech companies and stuff. But it even goes so far as to say is like when he talked, when they, he reached out to Facebook, he reached out to YouTube, and they're like, um, YouTube's like, yeah, we're not going to change anything. Sorry. And there's no reason for them to because the people who are truly, truly, truly offended by spoilers and are completely dependent upon being able to be on the internet for whatever reason, uh, personal reasons or professional reasons, I think is so incredibly niche that it's, it's really to the point of irrelevance. You are either left to binge or just stay caught up, right? If you like a show... And you start watching it right away, and you want to stay up to date on it, great. Uh, I know for myself, I'll give you a perfect example with Game of Thrones. I don't, I'm not ever in a position to watch that uh, just due to work and, and getting kids ready and all that kind of stuff for school the next day. So I don't get to watch on Sunday nights. I have to wait until Monday unless I want to stay up really, really late, which generally I don't want to do. So what do I do? I just don't get on Facebook. I don't get on Twitter for about 12 hours. Now, the articles, again, the article is saying, you know, that shouldn't have to be your only choice. But for me, even someone who does keep it, I don't care. I just simply don't care enough to let it bother me that, oh, I should probably just stay off Facebook and Twitter for a few hours, you know, and then watch my and then watch my show. Um, so... There are ways to protect yourself. I think the people who truly want to protect themselves will. And I think there is already happy medium ava- happy mediums available for those who do want to protect themselves. <clears throat> um, for example, like sites like Reddit, they have the spoiler tags abound everywhere. They also have the ability to, when you create comments and stuff, create spoiler tags within them that create black bars of text that you have to hover your mouse over for you to be able to see it. So there's stuff like that. The stuff's already there, and it's an interesting article, but at the end of the day, personally, I kind of find it unnecessary. And the culture is what it is because that's the way we like it. And until we find some other kind of culture bending or cultural redefinition in terms of the way we consume our entertainment, I just don't see it changing. And that is, that is what I think, sir. What, what do you think? 
Yeah, I agree with you on the sense that uh, that I don't think really movies necessarily get spoiled for me, even though that predominantly whenever I'm online kind of searching for, uh, you know, if I'm just online just searching for anything, most of that time is spent on uh, entertainment websites, doing research about movies and whatnot, movie news. And I try to, st- uh, I try to stay away from all the gossipy movie websites. Uh, like, you know, like Cinema Blend or Collider, I try my best to stay away from, from going on those sites because they are the ones, those are the type of sites that like to spoil things. And I understand if you don't, if you don't put that spoil in the subject line, like the title of the article of, you know, uh, like say Empire Strike Back came out nowadays, Luke, I am your father. You know, and that would be the title of the article. No, they don't do stuff like that. They don't spoil it that blatantly. But what they do do, and this is how actually The Walking Dead, I'm about, I'm a season behind because I just watched it on Netflix since I don't have cable or anything like that. I just catch it whenever it, it comes out. So I'm a season behind. And of course, whenever a lead character dies, and it's not just with The Walking Dead, but they do it with... Uh, with, with all these other shows as well, like uh, they did with Breaking Bad, and they they do it with Game of Thrones all the time. When a character dies that people love or people like, they won't say they'll they'll uh, the title of that piece of news would be something along the lines of "Guess who died this week?" or "Did this person really die? Did he really die?" And granted, they they try to keep it up in the air because obviously people will die. But what they do all the time, what they do is that they show the picture of that person normally. Or they'll show a picture that gives it away. You know, and of course, if you're like a casual viewer of TV shows or a casual viewer, you might not really pick up on it. But for somebody like me who pays attention to details and and pays attention to a lot of stuff and actually watches it and I I, I don't know I mean I, I don't I don't want to say that I look at things differently from a lot of people but if you if you care about something enough you start noticing more things and picking up on more stuff and I can pick up on that shit and so somebody who who died on the walking dead the the this current season again I'm a season behind Completely got spoiled for me. I now know what happened or, or what, what happened to who. And so I think in that regard, TV shows get spoiled more so on the internet because it's a, it's a weekly thing. And also there's just so much content out there that it's easy to spoil a TV show because automatically I think people, especially with binge watching, a lot of people assume that you have seen Orange is the New Black, or you have seen the latest season of House of Cards, when in all reality, there's so much to watch, and I work, I watch movies, I don't have time to sit down and binge watch an entire show on, on, on any given afternoon, or on any given evening, you know, I got, I've got priorities, man, I got other stuff to do, than sit down and watch you know, a, a show just because everybody else is watching it, when I might want to save it for the holidays when I have time off or the summer when I have time off. So I think keep the article title super misleading, not misleading, but super, you know, uh, blase. And then whenever you get to the meat of the article, because you have it coming for you or coming at you, if 
you just skim through the article and you don't actually sit down and read the article. But just make sure you say spoiler alert. Because I don't want things spoiled for me. I will continue watching The Walking Dead because I know a lot of people die on The Walking Dead. There's a lot of story to tell. And the entire story doesn't revolve around this one particular person. But it's still kind of a, oh shit, God, I just really didn't want to know about it. Because who knows how, how, how the show will build up to that moment. You know, something might be relying on that moment, or, or that, that single moment might be relying on a feeling, on an emotion of that story, or vice versa. Or, you know, again, that's, that's how I kind of look at it, is that it's just not the idea of, oh, somebody's dying, or, ooh, this, this story has changed. You know, there's a, there's a plot twist. It's not the idea of it being a plot twist, but what it all affects. Not with the, only the movie or the TV show, but the characters themselves, everybody who is involved. And so that's, that's what kind of gets me about spoilers, is that it's not just the spoiler, it's everything else that it affects within the TV show and movie. And like I said before, I think it's more so TV shows, again, that get spoiled. Um, however, with movies... Since we're a movie podcast, I guess I should predominantly talk more about movies. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily people spoiling it because I think movies, more people will go see a movie the week that weekend. And I think a lot of movie websites, especially like Collider or you know Cinema Blender or whatever, they're normally pretty good about not spoiling it for you because if especially if it's a movie that they're excited about, uh like Mad Max or you know, whatever they'll you know they'll they they want you to they understand your desire of wanting it wanting to experience it firsthand and not not read it somewhere not get anything spoiled and so they'll give you spoil alerts and all that jazz but marketing on the other hand marketing is its own bag of spoilers star wars the force awakens is a good example when Star Wars The Force Awakens, you know, months ago, I think in May, when the first trailer came out, the teaser trailer, it was a teaser trailer. It was all these shots, you know, with within a minute, you know, I think uh, for about a minute, it was like a series of all these shots and the music and, man, it got you amped and that's all you needed to see for the movie. That's the only trailer that Disney and Lucasfilm, or I guess just Disney, could have released, and still everybody would go and see the movie. And yet, after that trailer, they released a couple pictures. Again, they're very kind of blasé pictures. You know, you don't, I mean, there's really no meaning to them. And then more people started asking questions. More people want to know why, 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 and therefore that's creating more buzz on the internet. To where it's not just people talking about how much they love Star Wars and how much they're looking forward to Star Wars, but every time a new TV spot a new trailer, a new uh, a, a new series of images get released because nowadays it's not it's not just one image or two images. It's like fucking sixty images. It's seventy images, and you know it's people want to analyze that shit. And so that is when you when you do go onto a movie website and you start reading about shit. It's all talking about Star Wars. It's all talking about the new images. Ooh, the hidden meetings. Ooh, what are they trying to keep you? But even even if you're not clicking on those articles and reading those articles, you're still being exposed to Star Wars and those pictures. Because again, those pictures are what's uh, what's attached to that uh, attached to the online articles. Because you're not just scrolling through and looking at title names, but there's usually a picture attached to that title. 
And so I just think that in part, of course, they're fans. And of course, fans love and, and want to talk about what they love. But I think, you know, marketers, and especially with movies like Star Wars, because this is what kind of got me with, well, I guess it's the same marketing that did Avengers, because I got sick and tired of Avengers when Avengers came out. And I'm not one that watches the clips that get released, and I'm not one that watches the trailers over and over again. I mean, I have not seen the latest Star Wars trailer, because, I mean, I, I don't want to be exposed to it now, since the release of the movie is so damn close. But I was sick and tired of Age of Ultron before I even went and saw Age of Ultron. And then I watched it here a couple weeks ago, rewatched it, and I enjoyed it a little bit more because I had time to kind of decompress for Marvel Avengers mania that was kind of going on when the movie came out. So less is more. Less is more. And it's not just the spoilers online, but it's also marketing as well. So I think this was an interesting discussion, obviously. Right on. Okay, well, uh, next week, as I already previously mentioned, uh, we are actually going to do the three squared for real this time. And it is going to be a three squared on our favorite cameos. So just celebrity appearances in movies. And I have a feeling that this is probably um, a topic that we will ultimately revisit. And I kind of hope we do because there are just shit tons of badass cameos but we're going to cover three of our favorites next week and with nothing else on that we thank you for listening to discussions with matt and tim please join us next time when there is another discussions with matt and tim even if we do not know when the next discussions with matt and tim will be and with nothing else left to do, I guess it's time for... The Movies! Awesome. So, as uh, I can't even remember if we explained it right or not, but yeah, we, we were supposed to have three movies this week. But unfortunately, due to ill timing on everybody's parts, the movie theaters pulling it and us not seeing it before they pulled it, we did not get to see 99 Holmes. So we will just be covering Mr. Holmes and me and Earl and the Dying Girl. What would you like to start with first, sir? How about Mr. Holmes? Mr. Holmes, Mr. Holmes. Or maybe if he was a rapper, he'd be... If he was a rapper, maybe he'd be 99 homes. <laughs> maybe. Or at least 93 homes. Because if you've seen the movie, you know he's 93 in the movie, and that would make a lot more sense. Anyway, all right. Uh, it's a Mr. Holmes 2015 British-American crime drama mystery film. It's directed by Bill Condon, and it is based on a novel from 2005 called A Slight Trick of the Mind. It features the character of Sherlock Holmes and... Uh, Stars Ian McKellen, Laura Lenny, Hiroyuki Sanada, and Milo Parker. Uh, Mr. Holmes is, uh, it's 1947. Mr. Holmes is now 93 years old. He's retired. Lives in a little farmhouse. And he's uh, he's got a housekeeper, Mrs. Murrow, and her son, Roger. And he is basically very unhappy with the way that 
um, that uh, Watson wrote about his last case. He's uh, he's taking drugs for uh, or his own special concoctions, as it were, to help an ailing memory. But he is also a beekeeper, and I do really, really like that part, and I also like how it plays an important part later on, but I'm not going to spoil it for you, so ha ha ha. <clears throat> Speaking of spoilers. But they incorporated beekeeping, and that's actually really cool because in the, in the books, he does retire as a beekeeper, so I thought that was pretty badass. Um, it, it's kind of a movie that takes place uh, in the here and now, but also recounts certain events that are being dealt with through a series of flashbacks. And primarily it is this last case that he worked on that Watson uh, fictionalized. And then also his dealings in Japan, um, where he had gathered ingredients for this uh, concoction that's supposed to help his memory. And then, of course, how it relates to the dealings with his housekeeper and her son. Now, I got to say that this is a pretty interesting film overall, but and, and very brilliantly acted. I mean, clearly, you have Ian McKellen. You pretty much just can't go wrong at that point. But I don't know. I really just kind of felt like this was a quiet, television-worthy BBC drama that they decided to make into a movie. Um, And I'm not bashing that. I just think that perhaps maybe this was not something that needed to be a full-fledged film. And I'm sure it's going to be some kind of Oscar bait and everything. I mean, again, British high-drama Ian McKellen, right? So, whatever. But I like how it touched on the themes of someone who has been so famous and who has dealt with people who have been close to him and others who are affected by him, whether or not he knew him in the first place, and how that parlays itself into the winter of a person's life. So there are lots of really interesting themes here, but I just don't know if it really needed the full movie treatment or not. Um, and it's just because of the story that it tells. It, it has It's not a knock against the director or the acting, but I just really felt like this was something that was just a little bit too much overdone and overwrought to be a full-on film. And because of that, I am giving this a 3.75. It is good. that You can't take away from the fact that it is good. And it does have an interesting story to tell. But I almost kind of feel like it was just a project that I, that I, that I think just kind of missed its stride. Uh, 3.75. What do you got there, Tim? You know, I agree with you 100%. 3.75 for me. Uh, well shot, well acted. Uh, I really liked Ian McKellen's take on Holmes. I thought really the movie was intriguing. Uh, it was compelling. And I really liked the story and how the flashback 
of his last case kind of ties into what's going on now. And he's kind of he's kind of trying to solve two different, actually three different cases. There's the case of his past. There's the case of him losing his memory. And then there's also the case of 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 the bees that are dying off and if those are linked in any way by any theme or for any or 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 in any other matter that's for you to decide because i do think that they are linked in some way and it's it's a very interesting movie it's a thought provoking movie and like i said it's compelling with beautiful performances and it's wonderfully shot it's directed by bill condon you wouldn't expect anything less however the last part of the movie not necessarily the last act but the last kick isn't as compelling as the rest it, it underperforms it turns into it, I, I think that's for me when it turns into and it gets into like tv territory where it kind of i don't want it doesn't necessarily wrap everything up with a nice pretty little bow but it wraps everything up with a nice pretty little little bow and it's nice little packaging and everything that's not necessarily a bad thing thing it just felt a little too easy when you're dealing with Holmes you know Holmes when you think about Sherlock Holmes it's complicated or he's complicated his his mysteries are complicated how he solves things are complicated and yes I know he's not the stereotypical Holmes which is what is very much charming about the movie but it just wasn't compelling when it when it, when it all boils down to it just isn't compelling so 3.75 out of 5. I do highly recommend it. I think a lot of people will enjoy this movie, especially if you're an Ian McKellen fan, if you're a Bill Condon fan. The boy in it is really good. And it's just a good story about aging. And I think a lot of people can relate in some particular way, I guess. But, uh, yeah, 3.75 out of 5. All right, well, then that will bring us to Me and Durrell and the Dying Girl, 2015 American dramedy. It's uh, directed by Alfonso Gomez Rejon, or Rejon, I guess, and written by Jesse Andrews. It's also based on Andrews's debut novel of the same name. Film stars Thomas Mann, Olivia Cook, R.J. Seiler, John Bernthal, and Nick Offerman. And it tells the story of the downtrodden... Greg Gaines, who basically kind of exists in life, as it were. And he is rather forced upon a young childhood friend who has been diagnosed with leukemia. And while they definitely both understand the fact that they're kind of forced together... A bond forms nonetheless. And then, of course, as I always like to say, shenanigans ensue. Now, until, of course, the story comes to its natural conclusion, given what you've just been told in the beginning, and the fact that this is a Fox Searchlight picture, I'm pretty sure you should be able to put it together from there. Are you saying Fox Searchlight pictures only makes depressing movies... Um, their, their their goal is to make you tear up a little bit. I'm saying that that's a very, very high likelihood, <laughs> but not a guarantee. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I will say that this is their diff- this is definitely their Oscar bait avenue of distribution, but whatever. And all right, here's the thing. 
I can appreciate what the film is trying to do. Truly, I can. And I think that in much the same vein as people, kids today and people today just simply, on the, ho- on, the, on the whole, the preponderance will not go back and watch films previously unless they're just considered the must-sees, right? The Ben-Hurs and the Ten Commandments and the Gone with the Winds, right? Th- these are films that are just not very often revisited anymore. And that's why we keep seeing every generation, every, you know, say, 8 to 12 years, we keep seeing a new version of this kind of a story being told with new up-and-coming talent. So I, I get it. I appreciate it. But the problem is, is that this film has been done, this style of film has been done better years before. And there's several different ones to choose from. But the... but. And while this one is is not bad, I just kind of feel that overall it's just terribly cliched. And oh, and and, I'm, and and you know what? I can even do a better one. I can do one that's uh, Tim. Help me out here. I think I'm sure you've probably seen it. All right. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Seth Rogen, and Joseph. Fifty. Gordon- uh, uh, 50, 50, 50, 50. Yeah, fifty yeah. fifty. There you go. So. 50-50, I would say, would probably be a better way to tell this story than me and Earl and the Dying Girl. And that's just within the last few years. So, I, I get it. I get what they're trying to do. But for me, I it, it just it just doesn't work. It's been done before. It's been done better. But I can appreciate it for what it is. I, I can walk away saying that I liked it. Three stars. Performances are solid. Uh, the directing is solid. Cinematography is solid. Everything is all is well-rounded, but it just doesn't bring anything new to it. So I liked it, but that's all. Three stars. Go ahead, sir. I, I thought it was a good movie. This is some, this is one that I've only heard good things about. Uh, not not too much negativity. The the performances are are very good. Especially Olivia Cook, who plays Rachel, uh, who's the dying girl. Uh, you might know her from Bates Motel. If you watch Bates Motel, she was also in that movie Ouija about that board. That's exactly Fantastic what the movie. Fantastic movie we reviewed last year. <laughs> yeah, that wonderful movie that Matt liked, but I did not. <laughs> uh, and and I thought Molly Shannon did a really good job uh, with the movie. Why? I mean, once you see her the first couple times, you might think. Why Molly Shannon? But once the movie goes on, her her, her character becomes more... The, the drama... Once the drama more so comes out or comes into play, you'll see why. It's, it's just the little things, the moments. And really, one of the greatest compliments, one of the best compliments I can give a movie like this is that it hits the moments right on. Square in the face. Every moment that they were trying to go for, that they were reaching for, they get... All the sad moments where they want you to feel sad, you feel sad. When you want to feel depressed, you'll be feeling depressed. If you want to laugh or feel like, you know, there's hope, you got it. And so the movie has that going for it, which right off the gate, it's fantastic. It's great. You know, that it's very difficult to execute that particular thing in a movie like this. However, the movie is very cliched, like what Matt was saying, as well as... It tries way too hard 
the, the the dialogue just tries too hard. Like this is a movie where uh, the one of the the two leads. Uh, I'm going to call him me, <laughs> but the me in the movie, uh, Thomas Mann plays Greg, uh, and Earl played by RJ, RJ, RJ Seiler. They're movie buffs. So throughout the movie, they talk about all these movies, all these obscure movies that a lot of people have not seen, but the two of them bonded as young chaps because they loved these type of movies. And Nick Offerman, who plays Greg's dad, uh, kind of, it, you know, he's, he's the one that showed him these movies. And so it, it's, it's interesting at first that, you know, they're talking about all these old films and you see a lot of old movie posters and you see a, a pretty much the entire Criterion collection multiple times it, it, throughout multiple shots while they're in this movie, uh, in this, uh, in this old movie uh, video shop or DVD shop or whatever. And it's really kind of cool. And on top of that, you have these really cool camera movements and the camera's twisting around and moving around and spinning around as it's transitioning from one scene to the next. It's kind of, it's kind of inventive and fun in the style of Martin Scorsese's, uh, Goodfellas, where the camera is constantly moving. Um, and like I said, you know, when the movie first starts, the first 15, 10, 15 minutes, it's intriguing. It's inter- it's entertaining. It's something that is unexpected. And for a little while, you think, well, maybe this, I mean, is this supposed to be a zippy movie? I don't know. It's feeling kind of zippy and fresh and fun. And that's not necessarily the case. But the camera movements and those cliched moments and and the and, and the guys being into these old movies, all that old movie talk, young kids doing all that movie talk about all these obscure films just gets old because it just keeps happening. The camera keeps flipping around and it kind of feels a little pretentious and the kids are feeling a little bit pretentious and the lingo, the high school lingo, which I don't even, I don't know if kids talk like that now. I, I don't know. I'm 27, and I felt very much out of touch with what I was watching on screen. <laughs> I don't know. It could have been from because I was from Houston. I don't know. But it it just didn't feel organic and real. But like I, uh, but what I mentioned a while ago, what does feel real are the moments that the movie hits. And a lot of those moments uh, include, obviously, the dying girl, Olivia Cook. And once the movie starts cooking, once it hits the halfway mark, and once it starts getting more into the to the to the to the drama, I guess, the movie really finds itself and it becomes its own. And the imp- I mean, and the impact is grand by the time the credits roll. So it's hard, really, I think, not to like the movie, given it's it being cliched and a little bit pretentious at times. 50-50, like what Matt was saying where J- Joseph Gordon-Levitt is playing the guy with cancer. For those of you who've seen the movie, you know what the movie builds up to, and you, and you remember what the outcome is. And the movie does get very much dramatic. And, I, and I'm not, I don't think that's a spoiler or anything, because, I mean, the movie was touted as a drama comedy. And given its subject matter, of course it was going to be a drama. If you've, if you've even seen the trailer for it, you know it's going to be a drama. But it had a balance of drama and comedy. And when the drama happened, granted, the movie was written and directed by the guy who basically had what Joseph Gordon-Levitt is going through. The movie was based off what he went through with back cancer or something. The movie had, uh, had, had, had an authenticity, a uniqueness to it that felt real and felt genuine. And the... the, the and I think that this is what this movie ultimately lacks, is that genuine authenticity. 
for it to really have that particular impact for those jokes about old movies and how nobody really gets me because I'm in high school and I love film and I love old obscure movies. I mean, it, it just needed to be more authentic and, and real feeling. But it's still good. I like Olivia Cook a lot. So, good for her. Uh, I give this one 3.5 out of 5. Well, in that case, that's going to bring us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Southpaw, The Overnight, and The End of the Tour, all of which are available on VOD. So, I think that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by music partners for Rise of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Rise of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can even follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345 you can climb aboard that information super highway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire and don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio so until next week this is Matt saying that thanks to Kevin Costner I get to say this being a celebrity is probably the closest to being a beautiful woman as you can get and according to Wilco there is a song called Pecan Pie Wilco miscellaneous pecan pie As I walk along and stumble Trains rumble in my head As I breathe along and grumble I think about you instead In a piece of the pecan pie And you, that's all I want Just a piece of pecan pie And all I want is you Take care, cinephiles We will talk to you again next week Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.